Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. If you've joined me before, welcome back. If this is your first time here, welcome. At the Logical Christian Podcast, we look at what's going on in the world of current events, politics, science, and whatever the mainstream media feels is important to tell us, but rather than just accepting their spin and swallowing their narrative, we look at it logically, and we look at it as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you want to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. Until Elon Musk establishes our new Martian colony, which will undoubtedly screw up in fairly short order, the reality is we're all stuck on this celestial marble, so we're going to need to relearn the important lessons we were supposed to learn in kindergarten, if not before. We need to learn how to get along, and, and many say no matter what. And when they say no matter what, they, they literally mean no matter what and just shut up about it, which we learned in kindergarten we shouldn't say. On today's episode, first we'll learn the importance of sharing, then we'll learn how to clean up, clean up, everybody, everywhere, clean up, clean up, everybody do your share, and finally we'll see what can happen when others refuse to play fairly. So, grab your extension cords, don your hazmat suit, and square your tri-corner hat, I guess, triangle your tri you get the idea, because before we can have recess, here we go. Billie Jean King apparently once said, and, and I wasn't there, but this is what the worldwide internets tells me, quote, be bold. If you're going to make an error, make a doozy, and don't be afraid to hit the ball. This concept seems to be rampant these days. A massive number of seemingly smart people, and a lot of not-so-smart ones, making bold declarations, proclaiming expertise, while either being utterly clueless, completely wrong, a bold-faced liar, or more often a combo platter of these. Well, I think i found someone that appears to be very book-smart without an ounce of real-world awareness, or with an agenda that needs pushing. You decide. Found on Slate.com, <laughs> so you know this will be good, headline, should you let a guest charge their electric vehicle at your home? Now, for me, this would be a short article. I could simply state, no, and be done. I could also do a long-form article and ask, what do you mean by guest? Right? I mean, am I wrong here? Is this a dinner party guest? A, a game night guest? An overnight drop-in? A week-long visit by family? Makes a difference. The author of this article is a treasure trove all in himself. Ryan Cornell, a, quote, senior global futures scientist, Julianne Wrigley Global Futures Laboratory, and also, quote, instructor, School of Sustainability, College of Global Futures. This College of Global Futures is apparently part of Arizona State University. He's got a master's degree in sustainability from Harvard, another master's in mathematics education from the University of Phoenix, and a bachelor's in political science from Arizona State. He's more book smarts than man at this point. He's got a few articles on Slate, and I'm going to touch on them all, as, as this is just gold. I mean, just pure refined gold. In fact, Let's work oldest to the current one. There's only a few. I just want to give you a full picture of this guy, which, by the way, I did happen to look at his picture, and I think all of our reactions would be the same. Yeah, that, that seems right. So let's take a look at his past three Slate articles prior to this one quickly. December 2020, headline, It's time to rethink the tax credit on electric vehicles. 
Well, the gist of this one is very simple. In his own words, quote, we need to electrify. Mitigating climate change requires decarbonization, which will be impossible unless we are able to utilize electricity to accomplish tasks that currently require fossil fuels, such as automobiles, industrial processes, and heating. You can make those things more efficient, but efficiently combusting fossil fuels is still combusting fossil fuels. So we must decouple our economy from fossil fuels and electrify all aspects of our daily lives. This much is certain. Oh. So what he says we can do as low-hanging fruit is to extend the $7,500 tax credit, you know, our tax dollars, being reassigned to people apparently wealthy enough to purchase an electric vehicle. And don't extend it indefinitely. That would be silly. He's not crazy. But extend it much, much farther into the future to many, many more people. In other words, throw money at it. As we're learning all too well from President Vegetable, just flooding the economy with printed monopoly money, it only helps everything and has zero consequences. Moving to April of 2021, headline, The one question I hate getting about my home's solar roof. So, he's obviously got a home with a solar roof, as in the roofing tiles are solar panels, not that he put some big panel on the roof. He says that he gets questions about how much it produces, can it power everything, what about cloudy days, etc., etc., etc. But the one question he hates is, quote, how long will it take to break even on the money spent? The reason he hates that question is because we Earth haters don't truly understand what we're even asking. We're simply looking at the cost in our dollars for the roof, and that's because we're greedy, horrible, I'm reading between the lines, maybe just a little bit here, stupid people. Now, he says that most of these things have an ROI of about five to ten years, to which I would have to say, horse hockey. I've never seen a calculator give a return that short on solar panels. Looking it up, I found one interesting site, cpro.com, doing the maths on a Tesla solar roof. Bottom line, cost of the roof and power wall for a two-story, 3,000-square-foot home in Ohio is approximately $68,400. The value of the energy produced over 30 years is $51,600. Your, uh, your tax credit is $18,700 for a net savings over 30 years of $1,900. That, my friend, is $63 in your pocket every single year for 30 years. I mean, that is folding money right there. Now, we are also positive that this system, over 30 years of use, will never need a dime spent in, you know, maintenance costs. And, and keep in mind, and I, I thought I tried to stress this, but I'll make it clear again, this is with a nearly $20,000 tax credit. You, you save $1,900 in 30 years. Anyway, Professor Planet says it's a stupid question. Apparently, money isn't a concern for him. He says that you must factor in the cost to the planet and the environment, you know, when you use fossil fuels. 
these kinds of studies place a cost that they've concocted to quantify health, climate, and my favorite, other costs to the environment for every kilowatt hour you suckle from the fossil fuel grid teat. Anyway, this is made up numbers for an agenda. That's all this really is. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Let's move on. In May 2022, he's finally come up with the answer. Headline, there's a cheap solution to the electric vehicle charging conundrum. Ah, well, super. So we all know that the one lone single problem with electric cars is the lack of charging stations. You know, not the overtaxed grid, the exorbitant cost of the vehicles, the battery fires that never seem to go out, the terrible range, or any of the other host of issues. It's only that we don't have enough charging stations. Now, he makes some bold assumptions that he makes again in the article we're working our way toward. Basically, most people won't take road trips. Most people that do will be able to stop at superchargers if they do take road trips. And if you have kids, the car will be ready before the kids will. <laughs> he said that for most people that live in houses, they can plug their car into the normal 120-volt outlet or, or even install a 240-volt outlet and you will, quote, add more than enough range each night. The problem, as he sees it, are people that don't rent or own a house. These are the people that need to be sure they can charge their car, quote, almost anywhere, home, work, shopping. This type of charging doesn't have to be fast, but it should be ubiquitous. You can't charge here? Should be the new, they really don't have Wi-Fi? EVs have the ability to charge anywhere which means chargers should exist everywhere. Oh, so they should just be, uh, they should just be everywhere. Okay. So his solution starts with just blanketing apartment complexes and workplace parking lots with the standard 120 volt outlets, like he said, just everywhere. So just everyone can just plug in and just charge their cars. It's so simple, even an idiot could do it. And he's already done the math, so you don't have to. It would only cost an employer $8 per week per employee. Now, he didn't go on to do the math. Let's just say a small 50 employees, that's 400 per week. That's 20000 per year, which, I mean, for a company, that isn't massive, depending on the size of the company, but that's definitely money that can be used in other areas that help the company. This is dumb. Don't worry though, he's got the solution for people like me. Now I, I don't mean I don't mean disappearing me, although after a brief conversation with me he might want to. No, government subsidies, silly. You know how the government has infinity monies. Just use some more out of that endless Santa's sack of cash to pay for it. Man, this is easy when you have unending dollar bills, y'all. And that's just the beginning. How about street-side chargers? You know, like parking meters. Swipe your card, let it juice up overnight. Easy peasy. And finally, we'd need chargers at, quote, restaurants, shopping centers, movie theaters, parks, and other areas where people congregate. These are the spots where people want to spend a couple hours, which lends itself to the middle-of-the-road level two chargers. Charging while you watch a movie or play at the park is a much more enjoyable experience than driving to a charging-specific station. 
like a gas-powered car staying with the car while it charges. Notice how he flips to gas-powered cars, then right back to electric? Yes, I do have to literally drive to a gas-up station, and I have to stay with the car the entire five minutes while I re-gas charge it. That, to him, is an inconvenience. But what's not an inconvenience is plugging your car in every time you park somewhere. That's fine, because you just walk away for a couple hours, and then you'll have enough range to get home, so you can plug it in again. But, once again, he got me. He said that we shouldn't desire a recharge to be as fast as a fill-up. No, in fact, you're a dum-dum-dummy for thinking that. No, quote, charging at gas stations is slow. Ten minutes to fill up gas wastes more time than charging for ten hours while you sleep. Ten hours of sleep. Huh. Ah, good. Oh, it's nice. Uh, that brings us nicely to his, uh, what sure seems like a follow-up to this literary masterpiece, the article in question, headline once again, should you let a guest charge their electric vehicle at your home? To which I still say, no. In fact, I'll add that uh, poor planning on your part does not necessitate an emergency on mine. You bought the car, now you'll have to sit in it, on the side of the road, while some old grizzled guy comes and charges you way too much to bring his diesel-powered dually to where you're stuck with a gas-powered generator on the back to give you enough juice to make it to the next charger so you can sit and wait before you get home. In other words, as far as you're concerned, I have neither electricity nor outlets at my house. <laughs> Sorry. Furthermore, if this guy wants to get off of fossil fuels, I want to help him. And since my house runs on coal-fired power from the grid, that just won't do. I, I do not want to be the cause of him falling off the fossil fuel wagon. Anyway, before I start to rant, <laughs> let's take a look at this future Pulitzer winner, shall we? So this article is based off of a tweet from Adriana Porter Felt, three names, a director of engineering for Chrome, who asked, quote, What's the etiquette on car chargers? Do you offer house guests to charge their cars? Is it rude to ask someone if you can charge there while visiting? Now, I'll give you one guess as to the view of Generalissimo Environmentalo. He's got no problem with those things. If you allow people to use your water, eat your food, and charge their phones, then this is a no-brainer. Now, from my viewpoint, if someone rolled up and said, Hey, you got a can of gas I can have? The answer is almost always no. There's a gas station a mile down the road. Or I'd ask the question, Why did you roll up on an empty tank? Or I'd let this terrible person fill up with the can, then I'd give him the can, tell him to scoot on down to the gas station, fill the can back up, and bring it back. Now, do I sound like a jerk? Probably. But the reality is, asking to charge your car in my driveway is identical to asking to use the gas in my gas can, because you planned poorly. And I don't care about the cost. It's the principle of the thing, in my opinion. Of course, he does go into the cost of charging, which, yeah, I mean, I'll admit, the electricity cost is fairly low. For now. 
As power companies transition to less and less efficient sources like wind and solar, and the demands go up and up, and infrastructure is going to have to be upgraded to handle the demand, you know, so we don't have power lines literally on fire across the country, do you think that maybe, you know, just maybe the power company might charge more? But let's move on, as he's got some fantastically mind-blowing gotcha points. And if these don't convince you, well, maybe you need to be disappeared. He says, quote, electric vehicles save a significant amount of time in daily driving. One second to plug in at home is significantly faster than spending 10 minutes to stop and fill up with gasoline. <laughs> Wait, one second? I can't even plug in the vacuum in one second. He's, he's got to be some sort of plug-in savant if he can do that. And 10 minutes to fill up the car. <sighs> Maybe if you get a really slow pump. Maybe. Nah, he goes on, quote, It's possible that long road trips can take more time in an EV, but the difference disappears quickly if you're driving with kids or like to partake in such extravagances as eating or going to the bathroom. <laughs> Wait a minute. I like to partake in eating. I've gone to the bathroom in the past. This guy's relating to me on my level. <sighs> and then he drops the hammer. 78% of road trips are 50 to 249 miles one way. Okay, now this one is probably my favorite, so follow the logic with me. If you use a gas-powered car to take a, say, 150-mile one-way trip, you'll likely need to stop for gas on the way home to complete your 300-mile trip. But electric cars love 150-mile trips. In fact, he says they thrive on them. Quote, and as long as you can charge at your destination, you won't have to stop at all. <laughs> okay, st stop laughing. He knows from experience. Okay, chuckles. For the past 15 years, he and his family have made a 140-mile trek. <laughs> trek, 100... 140 miles is a trek for this guy. Okay. From Scottsdale to Oro Valley, Arizona to see family. Sadly, for the environment and probably to the shame of his children, they did it for most of those years in an evil gas-powered car. And quote, we stopped at a gas station on every single one of those trips. Now you might be thinking... Didn't your car have more than 280 miles of range? Of course, but it was unlikely that we started with close to a full tank of gas, which means that our range was always less than the maximum. Every single trip? I mean, he's going two hours one way. He said he's done this trip countless times over 15 years, and not once he thought, oh, I'll just fill up the car before we leave. I mean, not one time. And this... This is the genius we should rely on to tell us how to live. <laughs> it gets better. Let's go on. Quote, the process is much simpler in our electric vehicle. We start the trip with a full battery, plug in when we get there, spend the day or night, then drive home. No unnecessary stops along the way. No wasted time. Okay. <laughs> so they start with a full charge. But he just couldn't find a way to start with a full tank. Okay, it's good. And then he says, quote, We're fortunate that when we arrive in Oro Valley, the garage doors open and my wife's grandfather is anxiously waiting to help us plug in. It might seem like a simple thing, but the ability to charge at our destination 
noticeably improves the experience of our road trip. We don't need to stop anywhere on the way home. There's no waiting around. The car is ready to go when we are. And the ability to plug in as guests is what makes this possible. And voila, that's the solution. Just ask if you can plug in. Educate them if needed. Explain that the cost on their power bill will be very small, probably not even noticeable, and hopefully they'll say, yeah, go for it. As our eco-warrior concludes, quote, But most importantly, a world where we let each other plug in on road trips is a world where road trips are just that much easier and more fun. Who doesn't want that? Unless you don't want more guests dropping by, of course. So, if you're not an absolute piece of human refuse, you'll let people plug into your house, and you'll just shut up about it because they're saving the planet by using your fossil fuel-produced electricity. But it's not their electricity, and they're not paying the evil power company for it. You are. So just shut up and save the planet, okay? I'd like to say I have some grand theological point to make, but I'll be honest, this was just a fun article to review because of the ridiculousness of it. That said, we can learn something from this. Be honest. Commandment number nine, don't lie. But Dan, are you accusing him of lying? Yeah, yeah, I am. I sure am. Look, he has to be a somewhat intelligent guy. I consider myself a somewhat intelligent guy. I know when I'm writing something up, let's say for this podcast or for work, for church, every now and then I'll get lazy or assume I know something and I know I'm doing it. I know it might be wrong that I need to verify it. So I do. At least I try my best, and if I can't prove it, I'll take it out and try a different route. You know that he wrote that you have to stop for gas because you never start on a full tank, but you always start with a full battery and thought, wow, well, maybe nobody will catch that. And you know that there's no way he truly believes that charging a car to public charger is the same or more efficient, less worrisome as filling up the car with gas. If he believed that, then why does he want various chargers every six inches across the planet? Why would you need those? I don't need to trickle in gas every time I stop for five minutes. And how convenient would that be? Have little dribble pumps at every parking space paid for by the owner of the lot where I could pull in, just dribble the gas into my tank while I shop or whatever. He knows that electric vehicles are a pain. He knows that it's a dirty move to arrive at a house and say, can I plug my car into your house? I guarantee he never once asked for a splash of gas at a friend's house. In fact, at dear old granddaddy-in-law's place, why didn't he just ask for a five-gallon top-off so he didn't have to stop on the way back to put some gas in the tank? Because we know he didn't fill his tank all the way up like some planet-hating caveman. The author is disingenuous at best, but I prefer to call him out as to what he actually is a liar. But one thing you'll find with humanity is that a good chunk of them feel that lying is okay, if it gets you where you want to go. Not huge lies, but lies nonetheless. And that's the problem. Although he may be giving some actual facts, the intent of what he's doing is to be deceptive enough to push his agenda to get to his end goal. And I guarantee he would justify himself in doing so and feel fine about doing it. But... As we see in the Bible, this never works well. Cain lied about killing Abel. He didn't tell God he didn't do it. He just boldly evaded the question. Well, that's a lie. He was cursed from the ground and doomed to be a fugitive and a wanderer. Would things have been different if he honestly repented? Eh, we'll never know. 
Abraham lied twice about Sarah being his wife. In fact, Abraham actually told the truth. Sarah was technically his sister, but his intent was to lie, to be deceptive. The first time it brought great plagues on Pharaoh. He was commanded to get out of the land. The second time Abimelech, the king, was told by God that he was going to be killed because of it, and all the females in the household went barren. Abraham was confronted, admitted the lie, and prayed that God would heal the house of Abimelech, which he did. But look at the calamity that Abraham brought. What about Isaac lying about Rebekah being his wife, just like dear old dad? What about David lying about Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah? What about Achan in the book of Joshua lying about taking spoils of war he wasn't allowed to take and his entire family line being wiped out? What about Jonah lying and putting the entire ship of men in peril? What about Ananias and Sapphira lying to appear more generous, to be more righteous looking, holding back some of the sale price of property, which wasn't wrong of them to do, and then lying about it, saying that they gave it all, which was the sin, and both of them being struck down by God. Nowhere in the Bible does lying for personal agenda, personal gain, or selfish reasons ultimately ever work out well for the liar. There is some argument to be made that there can be a noble lie, a righteous lie. R.C. Sproul analyzes the lie of Rahab the prostitute to the representatives of the king to keep the spies sent to Jericho by Joshua safe. Sproul calls out the intent of the lie with respect to the sanctity of truth, stating that the sinfulness of a lie is that it violates God's righteousness. So when righteousness demands we tell the truth, we are to tell the truth. But we are under no obligation to tell the truth to someone that has no right to the truth. So Rahab's lie is justified because this is done to fulfill the mandate she has from God to protect these spies rather than to hand them over to an evil king who wants to destroy the people of God. Sproul goes on to liken it to those who hid the Jews in Nazi Germany or the midwives hiding the baby boys from Pharaoh. They were doing the right ethical thing rather than telling the truth to someone that has no righteous claim to the truth. Now, others will argue that if we truly believed in a sovereign God, those that hid the Jews could have thrown open the hiding places and revealed them to the soldiers, and God would have miraculously protected them. Well, although God could have done that, we find that throughout the Bible and post-biblical history that this is far, far from the norm of how God interacts with this world. To further back up what Sproul posits, moving to Hebrews 11, the Hall of Faith, we have verse 31. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient, because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. By faith. By faith in who? It was faith in God, the righteous God, the God that laid claim to the right to be obeyed, whereas the king of Jericho had no righteous claim to a truthful response from Rahab. The link for his message is in the notes. It's a pretty compelling argument. So to bring this back to something much, much more trivial than Rahab, the German Jews, or baby boys, is what this author, Commander Climate, lying about being done for righteous purposes. No, he may make the claim it is, but his lie is for the sanctity of the earth. His lie is being offered to a pagan deity, ultimately to Satan. Whether a pagan god, Mother Gaia, or Satan, none of these, only one being real, has a righteous claim to the truth or to a lie. Therefore, the author's lie is a sinful act. So whether from a human aspect of lying to push his agenda, knowing that he's deceiving people intentionally, or whether from a spiritual perspective that he's offering his allegiance to an unrighteous being with an illegitimate claim on that allegiance, this man has sinned against God by breaking the ninth commandment. 
what we all need to realize is that even this sin, this one sin, which in the grand scheme of the world, in relation to lies throughout history, is nothing more than a blip. It was because of who he has sinned against with his lie, the just, righteous, holy God of the universe. That's the sin. If this was his only sin, it would condemn him to hell for all eternity to pay for it through the wrath of the Lamb being poured out on him for that eternity. But a humbling of himself, an admittance of his wrong, repenting for this and all sins that have piled up in his life, and acknowledging, understanding that Jesus is the one true God, that the claims the Bible makes are absolutely true about who Jesus is, that alone can and will wipe away all of this man's sins and allow him to live in heaven for eternity. And that offer goes for all of us. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all offered our allegiance to an unrighteous, undeserving, created being. And we all have the opportunity to turn to Christ, repent, place our faith and belief in the one that gave his life in place of ours, then took his life back up again, conquering death, defeating the curse of sin for those that are saved. What an offer. I'd even go so far as to say that this is an even better plan for humanity than an electrical outlet at every stop. I have a proposal to make. I propose that we make Kalamazoo, Michigan, a sister city to San Francisco, California. Or maybe give Kalamazoo the nickname of something like the San Francisco of the Midwest. Something like that. Now, before you say anything or start your incessant questioning, no, Kalamazoo doesn't have the fairly stable, moderate climate of San Francisco. It doesn't have a professional sports team or two. It doesn't have a bunch of twisty, turny, hilly roads lined with flowers to celebrate the lives tragically cut short of those that died trying to navigate it. No, it doesn't have a Golden Gate Bridge. It's not on an ocean. Michigan doesn't have the same street cred as California, nor does Kalamazoo have the same gay cred as San Francisco. It doesn't even have the always lovely Ms. Nancy Pelosi. May she live forever, as she's already approximately halfway there. But what it now has, and soon will have approaching San Franciscan levels, is a very similar ambiance, if you will. And by ambiance, I mean poo. Human poo on the city streets. And don't worry, we all know that when you do a two, you're probably knocking out a one at the same time. That'll be on the streets as well. And not only that, but seeing as though Kalamazoo gets warmer in the summer and much colder in the winter than San Francisco, whereas San Fran just has average street poo, Kalamazoo will be able to offer their residents and visitors that nice hot poo smell in the summer and poosicles in the winter to kick around for something to do. Maybe we change the city name to Kalamapoo. Uh, Just a thought. Yeah, so I I wish I was joking, but alas, found on MLive.com, headline, Kalamazoo decriminalizes public urination defecation despite downtown business owners' concerns. It was an average July in Kalamazoo. The flowers were in full bloom. People were out and about in the warm summer sun. And the city commission was voting on changing several of the city codes, you know, as part of their effort to make them more equitable, so says Mayor David Anderson, heretofore known as the Mayor of the Flies. On July 18th, the City Commission met to hear those for and shockingly against decriminalizing the very natural process of human waste elimination on the city streets and sidewalks, in front of houses and shops, in the parks, on the benches, pretty much anywhere and everywhere other than those filthy toilets. Do you know what people do 
in those things? I mean, I for one would rather die than be caught anywhere near one of those nasty bowls. After hearing some concerned, clearly uninformed, likely Trump MAGAite humanity haters, the city commission wisely voted, may I add unanimously, to lower the offense from a misdemeanor to a civil infraction. One business owner, Becky Bill, ignorantly stated, quote, People have to clean up where they have defecated right in front of your door or your business. We can't have that downtown. Another business owner, Sherry Emery, probably ragefully said, quote, I don't understand why it would be proposed that the law would be less restrictive than it is now. I don't understand why we would make it easier for them. But, no pun intended, the reality is people are doing this every day already in Kalamazoo. In fact, Mayor Flylord empathetically said, quote, I hear you, while completely ignoring the pleas of the already fecally violated shop owners. But he said that this is a complicated issue and, quote, the approach of criminalizing these activities has also not done anything about it. And as we know, this is the approach that those on the left always use. Mass shootings are literally out of control despite the signage and various laws. And as demonstrated by those on the left, the only possible answer is to remove all gun laws. Same with speeding. Same with theft. Wait a minute. No, actually, they did that one. Uh, same with drugs. Well, okay, they're they're doing that as well. Okay, well, what we know is that they only do this for the right reasons when they do it. And, and they don't do it for the right reasons when they don't do it. That's something you can take to the bank right there. Pro-public squatty potty commissioner Chris Pradell said that they were doing this so as to not ruin lives. As we all know, a misdemeanor conviction stays on your record for life and can have negative consequences. And the last thing any of us would want is for a criminal, likely mentally deranged person, committing a criminal act to have a criminal record of that criminal act for those in the future seeking to hire a non-criminal. And Commissioner Quivering Sphincter Stephanie Hoffman said that we must have empathy. Now, I'm assuming she was weeping uncontrollably at this point. Quote, if you see a person who may be defecating, someone in their sane mind would not do that. There is an issue, there is trauma, there is a crisis going on. Won't someone think of the poopists? I might have added that last bit, but she was thinking it. But to Ms. Hoffman, I'd say, no! How dare you label someone expressing themselves or simply proceeding with one of life's natural wonders in full view of whoever is lucky enough to witness this beautiful event as having an issue or a trauma or a crisis. As the probably peer-reviewed medical journal, Everyone Poops, tells us, everyone, in fact, does poop. What do these uncaring shop owners want us to do? Hold the evil inside of us like some kind of animal? No, I say. Drop trowel where you are. Remove the unneeded, mostly biodegradable matter from your system. The rain or a random dog will take care of the expression of natural humanity in time. Okay, is that enough poo jokes for you? I could probably force some more out if I really bared down and pushed myself hard enough, but I don't want to pop a blood vessel trying to think of more. Besides, we've got a bit more paperwork to be done before we clean this one up. And yes, I'm well aware that some of those were, were pretty bad. So from what I can find, Kalamazoo has been democratically controlled for decades. It appears at least three decades, and potentially many more. I just can't find party affiliation of any of these mayors. Now, why is that relevant, you may ask? 
because those on the left are the most likely to do something like this, to allow public defecation in the name of equity, or to allow public defecation at all. And there is one simple reason for this. Those on the left are the more depraved, as they are the ones that have not only unhitched from God, the Bible, or even biblical morals, but they are at enmity. They're hostile towards God. Back in 2012, at the Democratic National Convention, three times the chairman called for a voice vote if they should include God in their platform. Three times, per the video, the nays and boos clearly won, and yet the chair, afraid of how that might appear, passed it along anyway to more boos and hisses. September 5th, 2012, the date the Democrats denied their creator three times. Interesting. Although in various parts of the world, and even a small percentage of people in industrialized nations, such as the United States, lack indoor plumbing and or modern sanitation systems, the reality is we know that having a system to remove human waste from around humans, processing it and eliminating it is the right thing to do. This helps in many aesthetic ways, but most importantly, it removes the various diseases and other health hazards. This, of course, hasn't always been the case. Looking back at the pre-industrial world, the times of the feudal lords, the Dark Ages, and on into the time of the Roman Empire, back into what we consider biblical times, human waste has always been something we've had to deal with. <laughs> I mean, obviously, right? And a variety of ways were tried, oftentimes ending up with raw sewage covering streets and overflowing areas of normal human activity. This, of course, led to all sorts of nasty diseases. We're civilized now, though. Yes, we're reverting back to just letting people fling their feces anywhere like a poo-flinging primate, but now we have people for that. San Francisco has the Poop Patrol, which in 2018 was shown to make an annual salary of $184,000 in wages and benefits. I'm assuming a lot of hand sanitizer and cholera medicine was part of the benefits. Now, before you get all excited wanting to get in on that sweet poop money in Kalamazoo, as they're going to need their own patrol soon... Looking at the cost of living, the equivalent salary in Kalamazoo will be about $93,000 for wages and bennies. And seeing as though only $72,000 was the actual salary in San Fran, that would be the equivalent of just over $36,000 in Kalamazoo. So, dookie cleaning may not be as lucrative as you had hoped. I'm sorry. What we do know is that this is disgusting. This is filthy. And I'd argue that this is satanic. This is yet another way that Satan is doing what he can to destroy humanity prior to him being thrown into hell once and for all. See, about 3,500 years ago, we may not have been given the plans for a high-flow, water-efficient, power-flush, ceramic, kohler bowl, but God gave Moses the very basic law of how to deal with natural bodily elimination. Well into the giving of the law to Moses, this is after the golden calf incident, after the rewriting of the Ten Commandments, God in Deuteronomy 23 verses 12 through 14 said, quote, You shall have a place outside the camp, and you shall go out to it, and you shall have a trowel with your tools, and when you sit down outside, you shall dig a hole with it, and turn back and cover up your excrement, because the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and to give up your enemies before you. Therefore your camp must be holy so that he may not see anything indecent among you and turn away from you. See, God views the human elimination of waste as unclean and indecent, while still recognizing that this is how he designed us, so something must be done. 
this law to do your business outside the camp and to do it in a hole and bury it also came in the midst of many laws dealing with uncleanness. But regardless of the reason for removing the human waste from the human population, the principle was that it didn't belong there. It was unclean. It was indecent to just allow human waste to be anywhere and everywhere. In First and Second Kings, we read about King Ahaziah, ruler of the northern kingdom of Israel for two years, 853 to 852 B.C. He was a wicked king that did not worship the Lord. He worshipped Baal, or Baal, instead, and led his people into sin and idolatry. In 2 Kings 1, we read that apparently he fell through some latticework, I'm, I'm guessing out of a window, and severely injured himself. As he didn't have anything to do with God, he told his messengers to go to Ekron to inquire of the god Baalzebub, as to if he would recover or not. Those messengers were met by Elijah, who was told by the angel of the Lord to go meet them and ask them why they were going to ask this Baalzebub. Was there not a god in Israel? And because Ahaziah did this, the Lord said that he would not leave his bed. He would die of his injuries, which he did. Baalzebub was a pagan Philistine god that roughly translates to the Lord of the Flies. Archaeological digs in the area of ancient Philistine have revealed golden images of flies, further lending to the credibility of this translation. The Jews, after the time of the Philistines, changed that name to Beelzebul, which we find in the Greek New Testament, which means the Lord of Dung, and Beelzebub, the God of Filth, which was then used by the Jews and by us today as a name for Satan, which would be accurate. As if it's not God, it would be Satan as the head of the demonic rebellion. So I'll be honest. When it comes to poo jokes, I'm a ten-year-old boy, much like most other men out there. Humans are funny creatures, gross creatures, and bodily functions can be funny because we all do them, and we all know they're disgusting, and what else can you do but laugh, right? I don't know, maybe that's just me. But when it comes to this sort of a thing, a cultural change, a shift toward filth, toward uncleanness, toward a dismissal of even the most basic of biblical principles, one has to wonder, where does this come from? As I stated, I believe this sort of delusional thinking is satanic. And although I agree with the one commissioner, for someone to defecate on a public street, in full view of whoever, it indicates a mental instability of some degree, I'd have to ask, who is the more depraved? The person dealing with mental illness, or the city commission that unanimously decided to allow it? We are seeing a rebellion against God, knowingly or not, at an increasing pace in this country. For those of us with open eyes, open ears, and a regenerated heart, we must firmly plant our feet and our flag on Jesus Christ. The time is rapidly coming when depravity and perversion, like we never dreamed of, will be praised and hailed as being accepting and inclusive, with those of us that are holding fast to the true truth of the Bible, will be shunned, canceled, attacked, jailed, and killed. So to wrap this up, let me say this. You and I both see what's happening. My intent with these reviews is to spurn thought as to why it's happening. We need to be aware and informed, know where we stand and not move, no matter what may come. To live is to live for Christ. To die for the Christian is gain. Although you and I may never have our lives taken from us, I don't think that most of us will escape rapidly escalating persecution. When the person who believes another person shouldn't defecate on the public street is the pariah, you know the persecution isn't far behind. The last connections with truth and reality are being severed. You and I need to be that voice of truth calling out to those who will still listen. So get prepared now, while we still can do so in relative comfort, because we need to be ready.
Welcome to episode two of The American Genesis. When last we met, the 56 members of the 13 colonies of America had unanimously declared that the oppression by the king had gone too far, that the God-given rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness had been and were being abused by a tyrant. We covered the opening declaration, the overall reasoning by the founders as to why it had come to this, and now we're going to jump in and read the specific grievances that brought the Continental Congress to this point. It's one thing to look at a significant other, a child, a parent, and say, I'm mad at you. Great, but if I don't know why, I really can't help you. Now, I can speak for men, and I'll say this, it's in general terms. We need specifics. I know women don't believe me, but there are literally many times men are baffled as to what they did this time. But speaking for myself, tell me what the issue is exactly, and we can at a minimum discuss, and more than likely I'll try to work on that aspect. This is what the founders did. They laid out in exact detail the issues that have brought them to this point. They wanted no ambiguity, no room for misunderstanding. This was not a husband and wife. This was a newborn conglomeration of colonies versus the world power. The justification needed to be ironclad. And as a bonus, whether they intended it or not, we are the beneficiaries of being able to view their reasons in context and determine where we are as a fracturing country today. Do our grievances, regardless of which side of the gulf we're on, measure up to the same abuse and usurpations, or are we just being whiners? Additionally, we'll discuss a grievance that didn't make it into the final draft and why it didn't. So picking up where we left off, we read, To prove this, let facts be submitted to a candid world. He, referring to the king, has refused his assent to laws, the most wholesome and necessary for the public good. He has forbidden his governors to pass laws of immediate and pressing importance unless suspended in their operation till his assent should be obtained, and when so suspended, he has utterly neglected to attend to them. He has refused to pass other laws for the accommodation of large districts of people unless those people would relinquish the right of representation in the legislature, a right inestimable to them and formidable to tyrants only. He has called together legislative bodies at places unusual, uncomfortable, and distant from the depository of their public records for the sole purpose of fatiguing them into compliance with his measures. He has dissolved representative houses repeatedly for opposing with manly firmness his invasions on the rights of the people. He has refused for a long time after such dissolutions to cause others to be elected, whereby the legislative powers incapable of annihilation have returned to the people at large for their exercise, the state remaining in the meantime exposed to all the dangers of invasion from without and convulsions within. He has endeavored to prevent the population of these states for that purpose, obstructing the laws for naturalization of foreigners, refusing to pass others to encourage their migrations hither, and raising the conditions of new appropriations of land. He has obstructed the administration of justice by refusing his assent to laws for establishing judiciary powers. He has made judges dependent on his will alone for the tenure of their offices and the amount and payment of their salaries. He has erected a multitude of new offices and sent hither swarms of officers to harass our people and eat out their substance. He has kept among us in times of peace standing armies without the consent of our legislatures. 
he has affected to render the military independent of and superior to the civil power. He has combined with others to subject us to a jurisdiction foreign to our Constitution and unacknowledged by our laws, giving his assent to their acts of pretended legislation for quartering large bodies of armed troops among us, for protecting them by a mock trial from punishment for any murders which they should commit on the inhabitants of these states, for cutting off our trade with all parts of the world, for imposing taxes on us without our consent, for depriving us in many cases of the benefits of trial by jury, for transporting us beyond seas to be tried for pretended offenses, for abolishing the free system of English laws in a neighboring province, establishing therein an arbitrary government, and enlarging its boundaries so as to render it at once an example and fit instrument for introducing the same absolute rule into these colonies." for taking away our charters, abolishing our most valuable laws, and altering fundamentally the forms of our governments, for suspending our own legislatures and declaring themselves invested with power to legislate for us in all cases whatsoever. He has abdicated government here by declaring us out of his protection and waging war against us. He has plundered our seas, ravaged our coasts, burnt our towns, and destroyed the lives of our people. He is at this time transporting large armies of foreign mercenaries to complete the works of death, desolation, and tyranny already begun with circumstances of cruelty and perfidy scarcely paralleled in the most barbarous ages and totally unworthy the head of a civilized nation. He has constrained our fellow citizens taken captive on the high seas to bear arms against their country, to become the executioners of their friends and brethren, or to fall themselves by their hands. He has excited domestic insurrections amongst us, and has endeavored to bring on the inhabitants of our frontiers the merciless Indian savages whose known rule of warfare is an undistinguished destruction of all ages, sexes, and conditions. Okay. So let me summarize these grievances, and as I do, I'll draw parallels to what we're seeing come out of Washington, D.C., and in some states, our Capitol buildings today. As I was jotting down notes in order to summarize these, the similarities to today are kind of frightening, I'll be honest. So I can break these grievances down into seven larger categories, and we'll hit these quickly, I promise. Number one, destruction of the rule of law. He removed laws. He wouldn't allow laws to be made. He ignored laws, etc., etc. We see this today. You can just pick up a news... Uh, you can click on your favorite news site. Well, on social media, you can see that laws don't seem to matter anymore. If you're on the right side, you can do just about anything you want. The criminals are being defended and hailed as heroes, while the law-abiding citizens are being demonized. Number two, representation was nullified. The king removed representatives, dissolved legislative bodies, and set up representatives beholden to him. He just assumed as much legislative power onto himself as he could. So, can anyone say executive order? Or declarations of state of emergency? Or how about the Defense Protection Act? Our current governmental system no longer follows the legislative process. The president just does things and then waits to see if it'll hold up in court. And that's not how things are supposed to be done. Number three, he weakened and compromised the judicial system. He removed courts, appointed judges beholden to him, and removed trial by jury unless it was done in England or some other faraway place in his court system. 
Today, judges are just another political wing. The rarity is a judge or a court ruling on cases that affect society based on the Constitution or actual law. Rulings are now done based on case law or precedent, or simply feelings based on political leanings. The president is given the power to appoint judges, which at this point has created nothing but a political strong arm for whoever can appoint enough judges in important positions to get their way. Number four, misuse of military power. The king had troops inside the colonies that were paid by and beholden to him. They were placed above the law, given free reign in the colonies. And this is one area where I can't draw a parallel at this time yet. That said, with the amount of weapons and ammunition government agencies with no need for it are purchasing, with the concept of defunding the police and replacing them with civil servants— with the NSA spying on all Americans, the FBI and others rapidly ascending above the law, and so on, we seem to be heading in that direction, at least from my perspective. Number five, he created bloated, unaccountable government agencies. The king put in place his own legislative bureaucracies, forcing the colonies to support them and abide by them with no say, no ability to redress the overreach of power by these bodies. Today we have acronyms. The NIH. OSHA the FDA, the CDC, the EPA, and on it goes. These are out of control, virtually unaccountable, bloated economic black holes run by people the president appoints that have somehow just assumed the power of churning out law after law after law, which they force on us, with our only recourse being to try to bring a lawsuit to stop the unelected tyranny. Number six, taxation. The king imposed excessive taxes without representation at his whim for whatever he wanted. Today, we demonize the so-called rich, but everyone is taxed for everything at excessive rates, especially the rich, to fund absolute idiocy and perversion and to pay the salaries of people we don't want or need in our lives. Well, I say that, but not everyone is taxed. Those that can be manipulated to be one-issue voters voting based on who will promise them the most cash and prizes aren't really taxed much of anything, all things considered. Number seven, war. The king was literally trying to smoke out those that didn't agree with him. He had troops in position and was sending more, all above the law, able to do what they wanted. He had caused destruction of lives and property. He forced prisoners to fight against their countrymen or die. And he was working to get the Indians to join his cause. Today, although I know that January 6th is the worst thing that's ever happened to anyone or anything in all of human history... <coughs> We see the left promoting riots, looting, theft, and destruction. We see them dismissing or ignoring crime. We see them encouraging the harassment or harassment, if you like, of political or judicial personnel based on political leanings. We see them releasing prisoners and terrorists. We see them pushing for mass illegal immigration and blanket amnesty, knowing that in that mix are very dangerous gang members and known terrorists. We may not be at war but we're definitely well on our way. So are we at the same point of no return that the colonists were? Well, again, I'll let you draw your own conclusion, but from my perspective, if we're not, we're certainly standing on the doorstep, fist curled, ready to knock on that door. 
Finally, I want to cover one grievance that was not included in the final draft of the declaration. This was actually the last specific grievance listed in the initial draft and was the most detailed of all of them. Now, my speculation as to why this was listed last and expounded on the most is because Jefferson felt it was the most grievous, oppressive usurpation of power the crown committed and forced upon the colonists. It reads as follows. He has waged cruel war against human nature itself, violating its most sacred rights of life and liberty in the persons of a distant people who never offended him, captivating and carrying them into slavery in another hemisphere, or to incur miserable death in their transportation thither. This piratical warfare, the opprobrium of infidel powers, is the warfare of the Christian king of Great Britain, determined to keep open a market where men should be bought and sold. He has prostituted his negative for suppressing every legislative attempt to prohibit or to restrain this exorable commerce, and that this assemblage of horrors might want no fact of distinguished die. He is now exciting those very people to rise in arms among us and to purchase that liberty of which he has deprived them by murdering the people upon whom he also obtruded them, thus paying off former crimes committed against the liberties of one people with crimes which he urges them to commit against the lives of another. So what was Jefferson saying? Well, put simply, the so-called Christian, and he highlighted this to mark the sarcasm, the Christian king went to other countries, think Africa, captured men, women, and children to continue the slave trade in England and propagate it to the colonies. That is, if they survived the slave ships they were stacked and shackled into. He refused to allow the colonists to make laws regarding slavery, rather forced it onto the colonies. And now the king was trying to blackmail or bribe the slaves to rise up against the colonists and possibly win their freedom. This clause didn't make it into the final draft because some representatives would not sign it if it was in there. This would have effectively ended slavery, and at that time, there were those that wanted slavery to continue as that was how these large plantations ran. Unfortunately, if the Congress did not have unanimity among the colonies, the United States would have fractured and been defeated easily by England or whoever. So compromises had to be made. Now, we can place our nose in the air and play better than thou, saying we'd never do this. But in the context of the time, slavery was a given. It was either going to be done in parts of a free country with the potential of eliminating it at a later date, which we did, or everyone would be slaves to the king. In other words, making a stand on slavery at that time would have ensured the continued enslavement of everyone with no foreseeable hope of freedom. Now, Jefferson and many, if not most, of the founders owned slaves. No, Jefferson didn't impregnate a young slave. That's fairly easily debunked. And no, not all slave owners were cruel, abusive murderers and rapists. In fact, Washington's slaves wanted to stay with Martha and the family after his death. Shortly after Washington's death, many states started making laws that you couldn't free your slaves upon death, which many founders wanted to do, as that was one of the only ways to allow them to go free. You couldn't just let them go. You couldn't let slaves go that had been given to you through some inheritance. So, for whatever reason, a change of heart perhaps, Jefferson appeared to be passionate about this grievance. But 
the time wasn't right to make that stand. You can do your own research if you'd like to learn more. And this is where we'll end the second episode of The American Genesis. In episode three, we'll wrap up the Declaration, stating exactly what was being declared and what it meant at that time and what it means for us today. And with that, we've reached the end of this episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. If you've made it this far, the odds are you liked what you heard. I'd greatly appreciate a like, a comment, and a review if you're so inclined. As you likely already know, it all helps with the algorithms. Don't forget to subscribe so you can be notified whenever a new episode drops. And finally, if you found this podcast useful or entertaining, share it with your friends, your enemies, your in-laws, your outlaws. If you want to reach me, you can do so at lcpodcast at outlook.com, or increasingly, I'll be using at lcpodcast on Getter. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic, there is no armor like ignorance. But Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless.